I think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. Hey, they're going to throw me out of here, fellas. You're going to get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like in Argentina, for River Plate or Boca Juniors. Or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matt look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now, the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr. My co-host, Rob Rojas. My trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 304 of Low Limit Football on this 8th of November, 2020. I am your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight we head into the final international break of 2020. And at the time of recording, your league leaders are in England, Leicester City on 18 points, with Liverpool set to face Manchester City later on today. In Spain, Villarreal lead with 18 points, with Atleti and Sociedad on 17 each, and Sociedad play Granada later today in Italy AC Milan the current leaders at 16 points France PSG is on 24 points and leading league on after 10 matches and in Germany Bayern Munich lead the way in the Bundesliga after a thrilling 3-2 victory on the weekend in der Klassiker against Borussia Dortmund the Nations League sees us turn the final corner of the group stages and teams like Sweden Switzerland and 2018 World Cup darlings Iceland Face relegation. Iceland have already been relegated from the competition. And we will take a deeper dive into Calcio and the Italian national team with our very special guest, Sabrina Belmonte from the Play by Play podcast, will be joining us in just a little bit. But first, let me get my co host in here, Mr. Roberto Rojas. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Joe. And, you know, looking at those league tables that you just mentioned, you know, is it a perfect opportunity for these teams to stop the count? <laughs> Um, oh, well, I, I would say in the, in the case of Villarreal, possibly, right? <laughs> you know, or, right. or AC, well, AC, Leicester AC wants, Milan. I guess maybe Leicester wants a title too. Well, maybe, Leicester, I mean, yeah, true, true. They wouldn't mind, they wouldn't mind adding a second title here. And, and with the hard charging, uh, you know, perennial champions in Liverpool, and it's funny to say that and Manchester city. Um, yeah, they would, they wouldn't mind stopping the count right now as it is. Um, <laughs> and, and, and teams like Dortmund want to keep counting, right? Yes, so I guess, and, and I think PSG are also just continuing to count uh, given their dominance. But, you know, in the conversation of, of Syria, I, I, I think Milan, after everything that they've dealt with in many years, I think they would love to stop the count right now, I, even Sassuolo as well. I would agree with you. Those guys are all in, in Champions League spots, not European spots, Champions League spots. So that, that is certainly something where those two teams would not mind stopping the count at all right now. And, 
you know, they're going to get their wish for about a week, week and a half, and then we're going to keep counting again, aren't we? Um, because every point must be counted. I yes, think. I agree. Every point matters. Yes. <laughs> so now that we've now that we've totally danced around the 2020 U.S. presidential election, my friend, which thankfully is over. I was like, I was wondering, like, as the time was recording, I'm like, are we actually going to go into this like recording not knowing who won? But thankfully, the news came about uh, yesterday, uh, about yeah, about around this time yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was funny. I, I pulled into uh, Harbor Freight to get a tool that I needed. Um, to, to clean my car with and I'm sitting there with my daughter and I'm like, I grab my phone and I go, Hey, let's just see what's going on in the election news real quick before we run inside. And I literally clicked my phone and like three seconds later, all the, all the news networks announced, um, the last votes came in from Pennsylvania and not the last votes, but the most recent batch and boom, they announced that he was the, uh, that Joe Biden was the president of the United States. So, um, reaction around the world has been interesting to say the least. Um, most most of the reaction that I've seen or heard has been positive um, of the change in leadership in the United States. And, you know, now we've got four years to see how this one goes. And uh, hopefully things go very well for all of us as a nation and as a world, because we're still living under the pandemic conditions. And, yep. and I think we need to get ahead of it as soon as possible. So um, that's right. Hopefully things go well. So let's get off our political ha- uh, horse here and let's get back into football uh, or soccer. Uh, we got to be politically correct. <laughs> um, That's right. Yes, and, yes, yes. And my friend, I have the trivia question for us today. Uh, and going into the final week of uh, international break uh, and the Nations League in Europe, I thought uh, a, a simple Nations League question would be probably most fitting. So this is yep. very easy. Uh, the 2019 Nations League Group A top five goal scorers. There are six of them, by the way, because there was a tie for third place. Can you give me at least five of the six names? So this was last season. Last season's top goal scorers in Nations League Group A, by the way. Okay. So I didn't okay. bother to get into the different groups and everything. Um, but can you give me the, the top goal scorers? Simple. I think just have to remember some of the teams, and then maybe that might help me. But I, I think I can have a good idea. But yeah, okay. Awesome. Let's All go right. for it. So let's, let's talk about opening thoughts today because... Uh, it's an interesting one. And, and talking about goal scorers and, and players and teams that are on form, um, you, we're going to go back to Barcelona. Barcelona has certainly been the center of football news over the past, I would say, two or three weeks, my friend. And this week is no different. And, you know, we're really focusing now on the youth at Barcelona and in particular on Sufati. On the weekend, uh, getting uh, picking up a knock on his knee uh, after the 5-2 win against Real Betis. Uh, he's 18 years old, and he suffered a torn meniscus. Now, the the curiosity is the treatment that Barcelona is going to recommend and follow through with with their doctors. Obviously, Fati is going to be out at minimum for four weeks, depending on treatment. But this is an injury that could possibly see him for uh, see him being out for up to six months. And again, it's all about the management of the injury. Um, and I speak of this from experience because I've had torn meniscus. There are a few different options in terms of treating this particular injury, and I'm putting my my athletic training hat on and my experience. Uh, The first is meniscus removal. We, you know, probably, Roberto, in the last uh, 20 years or so, we've, for the most part, we've seen removal of the meniscus, or at least the torn portion, because the torn portion of the meniscus can lock the knee and and cause your knee to lock up, and it's it's very, uh, very painful, so... His uh, tear, from what I can read, is a medial meniscus tear, which is the most common. 
and most doctors will come in, chew out the the part that is torn and just kind of clean it up. Now that leaves you without part of your meniscus. It leads down to arthritic changes in your knee later on down the road. And I don't think they want an 18 year old footballer with arthritic changes in his knee at 24. Right. So I don't know that they're going to treat it that way. The second treatment that you see for this is a meniscus repair. Now that is granted that the repair, the meniscus can be repaired. uh, And what they do, and this is one of the surgeries that I've had is they go in and they put a stitch in the flap that has torn and kind of tie it down and secure the the torn piece and then it and it starts to heal on its own but because of that surgery it is a very very lengthy process to heal it takes um, anywhere from i would say five to nine months depending on how treatment and how the how the player handles it or how the person handles it uh for me it was six months that i was out with that uh it's a very delicate um recovery um and it's and it's managed very very specifically the third treatment, and again, this is all dependent upon the severity of the tear, which we don't have that information yet from um, from Barcelona because of the um, the newness of the injury and the swelling that occurs with it. Uh, the third treatment would just be conservative, um, stretching, some manual muscle therapy, uh, which I have also had, and that can be a four-week, six-week, eight-week thing, but it's another thing that's managed gingerly. So we're looking at Ansu Fati, one of the budding stars in world football, um, was called up to the Spanish national team again for champion for um, Nations League, going to be out for a minimum of four to eight weeks and possibly up to six months. So that's the medical uh, behind it, um, Roberto. And I want to go to you now because I want to see what you think of Barca's management of this, Barca, how they look as a team moving forward. Um, you know, really, it's been the Messi show. Messi scored his first goals from open play this weekend. Up until then, it had been all penalties. So they're not getting a lot out of guys like Griezmann, you know, and, and a few others. And here, their one star has been um, Ansu Fati, and now they're going to be without him for quite possibly the season. And it's it was and it was always going to be a matter about like what was going to happen in case this goes. And it's actually funny that you say Barcelona star and you don't mention Lionel Messi. It's weird to say such a thing, but you know, yeah, I think this is a big blow for them. I mean, certainly from the from a football perspective, it is very difficult to see how they can manage when you're looking at a player that scored what four goals and, and an assist in like seven games in La Liga. He scored in El Clasico and. You know, and he's been just on a tear as of now, and just to have this major setback is is hugely awful for, for Barcelona and also for him as well. I mean, we'll get to the more status of, of Ansu Fadi in a bit, but I think, yeah, I think this is now the case where these, you know, the attacking players at Barcelona, you know, you're obviously you're going to see Messi step up. I think after what we saw this weekend, he definitely has to put in that responsibility as he always does. But yeah, even for Griezmann, I mean, he did score on the weekend as well, but he did miss the penalty. So all is up in the air in terms of his confidence. And he really wants to, you know, fit into the system that Ronald Coleman is putting in Dembele. I mean, you know, certainly he's someone that is just trying to get back into form as to someone who's also suffered multiple injuries over the last few years. And, you know, I think, We've also seen some bright gems uh, as well. You know, not just Fatih, but also Pedri. I mean, you know, the other teenage sensation has also been kind of a, of a shining light for Kuma inside. But yeah, I, I think 
it's very interesting when you think about it. I mean, aside from Messi and, and obviously, you know, you get these two teenagers that have been flourishing, you know, you're not seeing a lot from the more experienced players like Dembele, like Griezmann. I mean, uh, it, it, and it kind of comes in a in a bad shape, you know, and, and kind of ironic as we talk about it as, you know, we look at the player that they did sell over the summer, Luis Suarez, take over the Pichichi at the moment. So it kind of feels as if though maybe Barcelona are maybe are a bit regretful. I don't know. I mean, you know, Villarreal are, are I mean, sorry, Atlético Madrid have still not lost a game yet so far this season. So they've definitely found a way under Diego Simeone. Um, but yeah, and Joao Felix as well. I mean, he's been on a tear so far. Um, so yeah, I, I think certainly they need to pick up their, their form as of now. I think they definitely cannot afford to to lose any more games and, and, and lose any more points, um, especially in what has been a tight La Liga season uh, so far. And and now it's now going into the more Ansu Fadi situation. And Joe, obviously you can bring a more medical perspective of this. I think someone who is this young, you know, he just turned 18 um, a couple of days ago, you know, you don't want those issues to, to come about um, when you're much older in your early 20s. I mean, obviously we're all hoping that that isn't the case where this is a, a, a player that is suffering through multiple injuries over the course of his young career. But mm. I think from the safe point, and obviously we, we have to wait for a, an official word from Barcelona, I mean, you really want to get the best recovery necessary so that he can be 100% fit uh, by the time he goes back on the pitch. And even that's not guaranteed, um, even in, in today's world with all these injuries. Yeah, they, you know, for, if I'm Barcelona, I'm very, very cautious with the treatment of this injury. I, I don't jump right into it. For me, I'm, I'm looking at the long haul for him. I'm not looking at the short haul. The short haul would be go in, remove the meniscus, and and get him back out on the pitch in four to, you know, four to eight weeks. I, I don't think that's the right thing for Ansu Fati, um, short-term or long-term. And I don't think it's the right thing for Barcelona, short-term or long-term. I think the more conservative, and again, this is all speculation based on the level of the injury, the type of injury, and what the MRIs show. I would um, I would be much more conservative. I would even consider just manual therapy um, and hold him out eight weeks. And I know that Barca fans don't want to hear that. But if you hold him out eight weeks, you get him right and you get him back on the pitch, um, you get him on the pitch 100% and healthy, uh, I think he moves forward with a completely structurally sound knee, and and, and you get Ansu Fati back. Once you start going in and, and pulling pieces and doing things, you really start to mess with the integrity of the knee, and the knee is not something that um, does well when you mess with its integrity. Uh, it's just not the kind of joint that that favors that. Um Looking at and, and looking at the way things are set up right now, Barca currently sit eighth in the league. Um, the Ansu Fati is actually their top goal scorer according to Flash Score, uh, with four goals in league. And none of uh, the nobody from Barcelona is in the top five right now with um, with goal scoring because uh, you have two players from Atleti, like you'd mentioned before, Luis Suarez and Joao Felix, uh, both had five goals each. Atleti uh, have really turned this, you know, this season into something that is, you know, fantastic for them. At the time of the recording, they sit just one point behind Villarreal going into this international break. They are at the top of the table. And if you remember last season when we talked about them, they were really struggling. This is a team scoring goals. Uh, They've scored 17 so far in seven matches. They've only conceded two goals, Rob. So, they're going to be a tough catch. Real Madrid is up there ahead of Barca, you know, by, by five points. This is this is something Barca needs to really um, 
manage properly if they want those goals to come back. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of weight that's going to be put on Lionel Messi's shoulders at this point. And for me, you know, given what's happened, all the turmoil in the front office at Barca, you know, you know, people frowning on Ronald Koeman already in this young season. They've only played seven matches. And even though they're perfect in Champions League, they, you know, La Liga is a big deal. And he's going to have to contend with that. He's going to have to contend with the pressures of, you know, and I'm talking about Lionel Messi here. The pressures of continuing to perform well in Champions League, the pressures of trying to move back up the table while other teams ahead of you are performing so well. And and you're really the only focal point at this point because you're not getting what you need out of Griezmann. You're not getting what you need out of Dembele. Um, Pedri has been very, very good so far. He, you know, he's been excellent, but um, not to the level of what Ansu Fati has provided for this team. So there is a lot of pressure on Messi and, and a lot of pressure that Messi, many speculate at you know, come June 1st because of the debacle from the previous year that uh, he will leave and and no matter what. And I know Bartomeu's out and I know they're kind of moving forward, but this might be a situation where Messi finally says, forget it. And and, and he's done. And, you know, that would put a lot of pressure on a healthy Ansu Fati. Then will be 19 years old to perform. So I think this is something that Barca needs to be very, very careful with. This is not just some average player. I mean, if if I had to ask you of the top young players in the world right now, I know you'd put Kylian Mbappe probably number one there, but I don't think yep. Ansu Fati would be much further than three or four from the top of that yeah, list. Yeah, I, I think I think he's definitely. I mean, obviously, it, it depends on your criteria of young if if you want to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. I think you know this this is their future. Mm-hmm. This is their future, and they can't afford to. You know, obviously, I don't know how big his buyout claw is, and I'm sure. Clubs with tremendous amount of money are dying to get this guy, but I think Barcelona need to make it clear that no, this is your guy. This is this is your Messi after Messi. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't. I don't expect Ansu Fati to hit Messi levels, as we know. But in the in, in what I'm trying to say is that you know this is your main guy. This wants this is the guy that you can build your team around for the next decade or so, mm-hmm. and and certainly you want to make sure that he's at the best. Uh, possible fitness possible and, and yeah. you know that if you are able to risk something that is so delicate like an injury like this um, it could backfire if you you know you see him on the pitch so soon so I think Barcelona are and I, you would think that they are smart but you know I think given history of how they've dealt with injuries over previous players you feel a bit cautious but I would assume that, you know, given that this is a player that is their own, like come from La Masilla, the academy, and and they know deep down that, you know, this is the gem that they want to build their team around for the next decade or so, they need to deal with this um, properly, you know, yeah. conservatively, as you said, and, and just hopefully make sure that the, the players that are, are fit are able to to um to stand up and, and and provide their sort of their sort of um impact needed mm-hmm. and again back to Messi yeah I mean he's, he's already I mean maybe we're not seeing it properly but yeah I mean this this is a case where it kind of feels like ah we're doing it's like oh my god this is happening again where all the pressure uh is right on to me and you know this could be my final year and what the hell is going to happen afterwards yeah. so yeah this is a a situation where Barcelona need to tread carefully and hopefully that if they're able to pick up the, the points um, in the league and obviously qualify um, to the next stage of the Champions League, that they're hopefully in a better position by the time that Fatih does come back. 
Yeah, and you know, and and from the Barcelona standpoint, you look at this. Like I said, they're eighth in the in the league right now, but they're behind teams like Betis, Cadiz, um, Sociedad, Villarreal. Certainly talented teams, but you look at Barcelona as the squad is now. They're certainly capable of catching these teams because we're so early into the season. So I think the smart thing to do from a Barcelona standpoint, like like we've said, treat it conservatively. Uh, be careful with how you handle him, and. Ultimately, it will pay dividends on the other side as long as you can get him managed properly and, and moved on properly. So let's table our discussion of Barcelona and let's move on to our discussion of Calcio. We were lucky enough just before we recorded this pod to have Sabrina Belmonte join us from the Play by Play podcast. We got to talk about uh, her beloved AC Milan, Juventus, Serie A, Nations League. Uh, we hit all points. So without further ado, the Sabrina Belmonte interview. Joining us now on Low Limit Football from the Play-By-Play podcast, Sabrina Belmonte. Sabrina, welcome to the show. I'm glad uh, that we could have you on this morning. want to start out quickly asking you about your beloved Milan. Uh, they suffered their first loss uh, midweek to Lille in the Europa League, uh, their first loss since March 8th, a span of almost 10 months when you really look back. Uh, they went 24 straight unbeaten in all competitions, but now they currently sit at the top of the Serie A table, but they're currently second in their group table in uh, the Europa League. What uh, has impressed you the most about Milan on this particular run, and what do you see their fortunes are moving through, let's say, the Europa League and even challenging for the Serie A this season? I think what's impressed me the most about them and might not seem too impressive to someone looking in from the outside is that they're able to get wins against teams that are lower in the table, like mid-table, lower-table teams, which sounds crazy, but in the past, Milan has always struggled with that, especially to start off the season. This has been the best start to this a season they've had in decades, so that for me has been really impressive. I don't think that's going to translate to challenging for the Scudetto. I think as a fan and as other Milan fans, we're just cautiously optimistic at this point. We're happy with the good start because, you know, the way it is for all teams. You go through a few injuries, you know, you go through a little bit of a slump. Now we see a lot of players are testing positive for COVID every single day, so your squad can be affected day to day. So it's nice to have that cushion for us to just say, we want to get in the top four. We, we've got a little bit of a cushion but in, with the people behind us. And at the end in May, definitely will not be winning the Scudetto. Uh, but we're happy to just finish top four. So I think we're on track for that. Um, as for the Europa League, we are, that was a really, really bad loss against Lille, but it was a weaker starting 11. And and I get why Pioli did it. We have a squad who's pretty much exhausted. The qualifying for the Europa League took a toll on us. We had a lot of players out because of COVID, a lot of players out because of injury. And we're still just one point behind Lille at the top. We're three points in front of Sparta. So I think if we could just get out of the group, we don't necessarily need to win it. Maybe get through a few more rounds of the Europa League. It'll be good for the guys to grow. They are a really young squad. They're the youngest. And, you know, Serena, certainly what we've seen in this Serie A race, you would say, has been kind of the 
I don't know what's the right word to use, but kind of that vanilla style that we've been seeing of Juventus as of late. I mean, certainly their form would say that it's been decent because they haven't lost a game yet. But, you know, it's and obviously this is coming off the the 1-1 draw, the last minute draw gets gets solved, don't you think? Yeah, I think in the past, the biggest thing that Juve had in their favor is that they seemed unstoppable. And you would see teams face off against them that a win was definitely possible against Juventus. It's it's always possible in football, but teams went into it with, I don't want to say a weak mentality, but with a mentality of, you know, we're going to lose this game. Juve's going to come out, they're going to get the winner. But I feel like now that some of their weaknesses have been exposed and we've been seeing it over a longer period of time, you see that teams are going into games saying, we could actually take this, we could win this game, and they don't give up, as is evident by that late um, tying goal by Lazio. And it just kind of, they kind of seem a little bit lifeless, which is a complete step back from where they thought they were going when they parted ways with Allegri. That was the point. They wanted to play beautiful football. They wanted to move on from that pragmatic approach. But, I mean, yeah, you can look at it and say, hey, we're they're still unbeaten. Juventus are still unbeaten, but that's not what the fans want. And I don't think that's what the club wants either. So it's really hard to see why they went with Pirlo, completely unproven, had never coached a game in his life before. And now here they are, unbeaten for sure, but they just look like they don't have it. And Joe, you know, obviously, as the Juventino, you would have a better perspective on this. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel? I mean, certainly, yes, we're already in November. I mean, you know, we're approaching Christmas time. And, you know, I think that would have been like maybe a good point to really reflect on how well you started the season or how badly you have. So I'm curious to think how you feel about this Juventus side. And, and you know, if, if you agree that maybe the side is a bit... Um, not as pragmatic as one would imagine under Andrea Pirlo. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with Sabrina. For me, what, what I've noticed is that the, the team is trying to figure out their identity under Pirlo. And I think Pirlo's trying to figure out his identity. The one thing that does worry me is that this team right now um, is too Cristiano Ronaldo-centric. You know, they, if you've looked at their their performances, their better performances, whether it be Champions League or even in league and, and even earlier today against Lazio, um, it was all Cristiano. And once Cristiano came off the pitch or, or when Cristiano wasn't available for the Champions League because of covid or in the league, then we saw a different Juventus side. Um, I think. It's been a little disappointing what we have or have not gotten out of Paulo Dybala. I know he scored the brace uh, midweek against Fenerbahce, Vados, but it ultimately, you know, a couple of, of deflections, it was, you know, kind of late late goals for him. You, you really got more of, out of Morata, which was surprising that he wasn't offsides um, for his two goals. But the team has become, for me, a little too uh, Cristiano-centric, and I think that is one of the fears Um with this team moving forward. I think Pirlo has to kind of expand on it. And also, you know, you've got to remember no, no, um, Matthias Delict, no Alexandro here. Um, he hasn't really had the benefit of the full squad. So I, I think there are pieces that when they come in, you're relying on 36 year old Giorgio Chiellini. You're, you're relying on 30, I believe he's 32, uh, Leo, Leo Bonucci. You're relying on these older players. You're relying on Danilo to play in a back three when he's really better suited as a, as a wing back. So this is these are the things that Pirlo has had to work with. Um, he's had great depth in the midfield, but I don't think he's figured out McKinney 
Artur, Aaron Ramsey, who's, you know, injured, uh, Rodrigo Betancourt, uh, Rabio. He hasn't really figured out how to get the most and the best out of which combination works best for them. So it's still a learning experience for Juve. And, and like you've said, you know, they're, they're, some will look at it and go, hey, they're unbeaten. They've only conceded six goals in seven matches. The fact is they've only won three matches out of seven. And that's not going to be enough to win the Scudetto, especially not in this Serie A season where you do have a much stronger Milan. You know, we talk about Sassuolo as a as a improved side. Atalanta, Inter, Roma, Napoli, we have all these sides. And I still didn't even mention Lazio that, that tied them today. So there there is a, a, a massive road. And I think the sooner Pirlo figures it out, the better. Or else you could see him on the hot seat much sooner than than later. And well, certainly another side that has been exceeding expectations is, is Sassuolo. I mean, you know, the one of the only three teams alongside Milan and Juventus to have not lost a single game in Syria at the moment. You know, I think they are a, a an impressive side. They seem to be a side that I think makes it difficult for like, kind of a bogey team, I would say, for the top teams in in Syria. And, you know, I think they make life difficult for a lot of these teams, um, you know, similar to what maybe Atalanta is. And we'll get to them in a minute. But, you know, Sabrina, how have you assessed the start of the season for Sassuolo in their first seven games unbeaten? I know they haven't had too many big tests. I mean, you know, they did beat Napoli a couple uh, days ago. But, you know, it's been it's been impressive so far, I would say, for them. Yeah, I think the Derby is doing a great job with this team. And I know a big criticism of them was like a criticism of Atalanta, that they just give up way too many goals and that their defense isn't where it needs to be. But you see this year, they, they've they scored 18 goals. They've only allowed nine goals. And if you look down the table, that's pretty good. It's They have one of the best goal differentials in the league. And I think it's mainly due to the system that Dzerbi's playing. And I think that the players have formed a really good chemistry with each other. You know, Chicho Caputo has been like that Cinderella story. It seems like every year there's just that Italian striker that a little bit older but you want to see him do well and he's just shining and for someone who's spent most of his career in the lower leagues to then come to Serie A and do as well as he's doing I think is just it's, it's a story that any fan of football can appreciate and I think that while they probably won't qualify for the Champions League I think they're definitely going to be in the top half of the table for the whole season and I think they'll be pushing for Europa League qualification. We know that they did it um, a number of years ago after they had been promoted. And I think that this team is so exciting to watch. And we're finally seeing some consistency from Domenico Berardi. We're seeing a uh, former Milan player, Locatelli, who was written off by a lot of fans and, you know, by the club. And, you know, they, they sold him to Sassuolo. There's no buyback or anything of that sort. They didn't have high hopes for him. But I think with less pressure, he's was able to settle in and he's proving that he's one of the best midfielders in Italy. And I hope that we can continue to see the Sassuolo team grow and just be as competitive as they have been. And now talking about a side that has impressed mainly the world, I would say, last season and, and even for many other seasons, uh, for those that follow Serie A, it's Atalanta. I think Gasparini's side has really enchanted the way that he's been playing um, uh, for his, with his team. It's It's been incredible as of late. And But I think this season, you know, they're still in the Champions League. I mean, they, they did uh, suffer a big loss to Liverpool midweek 5-0. 
Um, but you know, they are still a side that are still looking to to fight for that uh, Serie A title. I would say I think they were always going to be a side that can surprise people in a way, and I don't even think they could be a surprise anymore. I think they certainly feel in their own right that they can contend for the top four and to go back to the Champions League, and if they're lucky, maybe even go for the title. So I'm curious to see what you think about Atalanta and how you've assessed how Gasparini has dealt with this side differently to what we've seen in the last few seasons. I think what's great about Atalanta now is that they're just part of the conversation. We can't, we were before saying, you know, they're just punching above their weight. When is this going to crumble? But I think the club has just run extremely well off the pitch. And we saw with their, in their previous seasons, they would have to sell off a lot of their stars in order to, you know, just make, make the back office work. But now with, that Champions League money coming in, they don't really need to sell off their big players. They were able to keep players like Papu Gomez, like who thought that they would be able to hold on to him for as long as they have. And I think that they've been really smart in the transfer market, even if they have had to sell a player, hasn't been one of their starting 11. And they're able to pick out these players. They have a really good scouting network that they've been able to go out and get players that fit really well into Gasparini's system. And I think it's just unfortunate for them starting this season. They've had a lot of injuries, and I think that's why we've seen them not doing as well or being as dominant as they have been in the last few seasons. And, I mean, that Liverpool loss really hurt for anyone who's uh, got some kind of soft spot for Atalanta, but Liverpool are a great squad, and... It, again, they had Atalanta has a lot of their players out. I think if they had a fully fit squad, maybe they wouldn't have won that game, but maybe it would have been a 2 nothing loss, maybe a 3 nothing loss. So I think once they start getting their players back in and getting match fit, they're just going to have a really good run of form and they're going to be right back in contention. And they've proven in the last few years that they could challenge for the Scudetto. So... It's going to be exciting to see what they have in store this this season. Now, Sabrina, I just want to jump in here because looking ahead at the Champions League for the Italian sides, I mean, many of the Serie A Italian football fans would want to see all four teams advance. So given where they stand right now, because we're at the halfway point of the Champions League, Inter currently in fourth place and uh, really in, in a surprise at one point this this. This group was upside down where Real Madrid was at the bottom. Inter were third. Uh, you know, Shakhtar Donetsk was first and Mönchengladbach second. Uh, so it really was upside down at one point from what many had predicted. Inter currently sit fourth in Group B. You go down to the Atalanta group and Atalanta currently sit third tied with Ajax. But drawing with them 2-2 at home is a little bit of a downer for them because they're going to have to go to the Netherlands and and get points from that match. You look ahead also at Lazio. Lazio currently sit in one of the better spots. They're, they're one point back of Dortmund in Group F, but they've beaten Dortmund so far in this uh, Champions League season. And then you've got Juve, a little lackluster against Barca, but currently sitting second. Barcelona on perfect on nine points. So of the four teams and where they sit, is there an opportunity for all four teams to advance through? I mean... When we look at last year, you know, we talked about Atalanta as the darlings. If you remember, I believe they lost their first three matches in group and still made it out in a group that had Manchester City. Um, do you see them, all four teams, possibly making it out to the round of 16? Yeah, the only 
the only team I'm really worried about is Inter. And I mean, at first going into it, I thought, okay, you know what? Lazio might struggle the most here, but I think Juventus, they're pretty safe. The group they have, like they might not win the group, but I think everybody thinks it's safe to say that uh, them and Barcelona are going to go through. It just depends on who's first and who's second. And now that they have Ronaldo back, like he lives for this competition. So I feel like, Juventus, definitely a lock. The way that Lazio have been shaping up in this group, I think they have a really good opportunity to go through. It's just disappointing that they would go and beat Dortmund, but then struggle and tie to Club Bruja. Like, mm-hmm. that, those are the kind of games that they want to take because if they go back and they face Dortmund again, it's going to be really hard to get another win. But I think that they're sitting in a really good position. If they can just squeak out a few more wins, I think Lazio will be able to get through. And I, like we were saying before with Atalanta, I, it's really hard for me to ever count them out. And they are tied on points with Ajax, even though they're sitting in third. And watching that game they had against Ajax, they never seemed like they were fully out of it. So I fully accept, expect Liverpool to just steamroll through the rest of this group go on and finish first and I think it might come down to the last match day but I think Atalanta has a really good chance of finishing ahead of Ajax it's just Inter that I'm a bit worried about and I know a lot of people will say you know they don't care about other Italian teams in Europe but I really do because I feel like the Serie A has improved so much over the last few years we have such strong teams and I'd really like for us to start showing it in Europe but I don't know if it's just that Conte doesn't really care about European competitions. You know, we all heard about his converse, his um, infamous interview where he was saying about the 10 euro note and the 100 euro restaurant, but they have a real opportunity to get through and they've been qualifying for the Champions League for the last two years and then just getting out each group stage. Like they have to take the next step forward, especially since, they're not doing as well as they would have liked to in the league. I think they need to really make a push and they can move on, but they can't afford any more slip ups. If they have another loss or a few more ties, like they have no chance of going through. So it's really up to Conte what side he wants to field and, you know, depending on when they can get all their players fully fit, but that's the only team I'm really questioning if they're going to be able to pull through. No, no doubt about it. Let's um, let's look at the Nations League, obviously, coming up to the last uh, international break of 2020, which seems like it has dragged on for more than a year, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, Italy in the Nations League currently sits second in Group 1 with Poland leading the way. Um, Italy have not lost in the group yet, uh, but a handful of draws, their only win coming against the Netherlands of all teams. Um they they do face Poland at home, and then they go to Bosnia and Herzegovina to close out the group stage. Obviously, looking to win the group and move on, they do have the upper hand against the Netherlands. You know they've they've called together a pretty strong side for these last two matches and a um, a friendly against Estonia, which will prepare them to get into uh, th- those two nation league matches. What do you expect from this Italian side? Do you expect them to pull off two victories, especially against a tough Poland side that has really not been wielding? as of yet well it depends well i guess i don't even know if mancini is going to be able to sit on the bench since he's tested positive yeah that's right (laughs) it depends on 
who he's going to field. And I think he has made very good squad selection since taking over from the disaster class we saw from Ventura. But I think he really needs to say, you know what, Immobile, you had a really great season last year and that brought you to this team. This is what's getting you these call-ups. But he's not performing with this Italian team. And whether that's because of the system, whether it's because, you know, he's not as comfortable as he is when he's playing for Lazio, I get it, but we can't afford to have strikers that aren't scoring goals. Right now, you have that Sassuolo attack that is doing amazing. Put them on the field. Put them on the field. They know how to get the job done in Serie A. And let Caputo have a run out. He, that's a system that he works well in. He's been scoring goals. I think we really need to just say who's on the best form right now because we can't afford to just wait around and hope that we're going to start producing goals. We need to score because being 1-3-0 and in this Nations League is is not good. Like this is not, it's not really convincing me for the Euros, but we all know Italy has a really strong squad. We have a brilliant midfield and it would just be nice if we can finally find someone who can just put the ball in the back of the net with some form of consistency. So I think if if Mancini's going to start um, Caputo, if he's going to let uh, Locatelli into the team, if he's going to put Berardi on, I think they can form a really good chemistry for the national team as well. I think we can get the job done. But if not, I feel like we're just going to be like last year. We're just going to finish in second. And it's good because we'll stay in the Nations League A. But it's not good enough when we want to be challenging for trophies. Especially, you know, leading into the into the Euros coming up next season and and following the World Cup right after that. You'd want them to be a little more um, on the front foot, you would say. So for me, you know, I kind of agree with you. Immobile's almost never done it on the national team level. He's been a phenomenal striker, obviously the golden boot last year. But um, he's never really done it for the national team. I, I For me, I think Andrea Bellotti has given us more over the past few matches than we've seen out of Immobile. Um, Let me ask you this. With Chiesa making the move to Juventus, and and we've actually seen Chiesa start out very well. He's been one of the bright spots, aside from Cristiano Ronaldo, in this early season so far for Juve. Do you want to see, you know, if if he doesn't go with Caputo, Berardi, and Locatelli, do you want to see something like Chiesa, Insigne, and maybe Moise Keane, who has has had a great start at uh, PSG? Yeah, I was I was skeptical when Chiesa moved to Juventus because I didn't think he was going to get any sort of playing time. So I thought, you know, he really needed to move on from Fiorentina because it was obvious that he did not want to be there. And it, I think it kind of stunted his growth as a player. So when he went to Juventus and he actually started getting game time, I thought, okay, he I, I've seen him smiling on the field, which is something I feel like I haven't seen from him in years. So yeah, I think that if, if, you know, Berardi's not going to get that spot, then yeah, put Chiesa on and see what he can do. He might be just refreshed from going to Juventus, from playing in the Champions League for the first time. And Moise Keane has shown that, yeah, he's going to fight. He's going to try and get that ball and he's going to try and put it in the back of the net. And he's been doing pretty well for PSG. And I think a lot of it is just for players. They just need the confidence and you know, these, these two players, they're doing really well at the moment. So Mancini's just got to say who is doing the best right now and who, how can I take that and translate it and try and form some chemistry on this national side? And if he does that, 
yeah, I think Keane can be successful. I think Chiesa can be successful and just have to see what Mancini decides in the end. And let me bring it one more. Let me bring it full circle with my last question. And that's going to be Sandro Tonali, uh, the youngster who's currently at AC Milan. Hasn't really gotten much time under Mancini on the national team. He hasn't really gotten into the pitch much. Do you think Tonali deserves a a bigger run out, um, especially in these last two or three matches before the end of the year? Yeah, I think it's worth it to give him a shot because he, I think Pioli at when, while at Milan, he has played him really well. So, you know, you have this player who is a childhood fan of the club and expectations are really high, not only at Milan, but in the league and across the continent as well. And I think Pioli did well to not just throw him to the sharks and just put him in there and expect him to perform. He's played him in, you know, games like in the Europa League or games in the Serie A that are, you know, against teams that are lower down in the table. And I think that he's slowly been growing into his role at Milan and he's starting to impress the way that we saw him when he first burst onto the scene. So I would love if Mancini could give him some game time and just show he can show what he has to offer because I think he'll play a really important role going into the Euros next year. I completely agree with you. Before we let you go, where can everybody find your work? Um, if you want to follow me personally on Twitter, just posting some of the things I've been musing about lately. Uh, it's SabriB10 on Twitter. Um, just for our podcast, it's me and my sister Lisa. We do the play-by-play podcast. We're on Twitter at play-by-play-pod1. And our podcast is on all major platforms. Fantastic stuff. Sabrina, thank you very much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. And we look forward to having you back again very soon. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks again to Sabrina Belmonte for joining us on the show. Rob, let's get into some information because, as we said, this is the last international break of the year coming up. And, of course, we have World Cup qualifiers in Comeball. Uh, we've got a whole list of matches that we're going to give you in Match of the Week. But currently, as it stands, after two matches, we see Brazil at the top of the table with uh, six points, tied with Argentina, both teams perfect on the season. Argentina really um, defensively playing well. They've only conceded one goal, but they've only scored three. So that's a little bit of a concern with all the firepower they have there. Colombia and Paraguay currently sitting on four points. They are in the automatic qualifier spots so far. Ecuador currently sitting fifth. Uruguay outside looking in on uh, on three points tied with Ecuador, but down on goal differential. Then we have Chile, Peru, Venezuela, and Bolivia rounding it out. Uh, Venezuela yet to score a goal in qualifying, um, but they've conceded four. So going into this, obviously we've got some interesting matches coming up. We've, we've got the derby between uh, Chile and Peru coming up. We've got a couple of other great matches coming up. What are your expectations coming up this week for World Cup qualifying? Well, I think certainly, um, I think the last, the first two games kind of gave an impression for many of these teams about where they stand. I mean, again, I think this is the case, as I like to reiterate multiple times, that, you know, this this qualifying process is the hardest and it's not a race, it's a it's it's a marathon. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this will take a long time. And, and, you know, maybe a lot of these teams won't be in the same position come 2022. So, yeah, I think certainly, you know, as we come into the first two games, four ma- only four teams have um, perfect records. I mean, perfect as in they haven't lost. So there are a few games to look out for. I mean, certainly the big one to watch out for, I think, on match day three is Chile-Peru, as the, you know, the, the Pacific Classic, as they like to say. And 
in that part of the world. Um, Argentina Paraguay obviously will be a, a good game given that well for me it's a it's a it's a, it's a rivalry of course. Uh, Paraguay's rivalry has always been with Argentina, so that's the one to watch out for given that there are also two teams that haven't lost yet. So. Colombia Uruguay is a good one. I think that's a really good one to watch out for. I think two teams that are very attacking. I would say. I think they they are very in the the, the discussion to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar. Um, I think Brazil will definitely have its easy. I would say maybe against the Venezuelans that are still trying to find their identity under the new manager. So they um, they feel hopeful. Ecuador and Bolivia is another one that I think is um, a, a good one because you know how Bolivia always have had a, a good record, um, well, historically, I would say, at altitude. So it's going to be interesting to see how Ecuador are going to cope, um, you know, especially coming after that, that that win against Uruguay last month. That gives them a good confidence um, heading into the game in La Paz. And match day four, I mean, the one that I think sticks out to me is Uruguay-Brazil. I mean, Uruguay, I think that is a match where... You know, I think Uruguay come into these first two games. I mean, these two games in November as as tough ones. Honestly, I mean, Colombia are no pushover in Brazil. Or Brazil, I mean, it's that simple. So, so far, I, I think that you know, come the end of November seventeenth, when all these two games are are over for for these sides, I think it gives them a good impression to see what they can work on and and obviously build into that for for the next few games in in March. Now, I mean, like you said, you've got uh, Uruguay uh, going to Colombia on the first on match day three, and then they're hosting Brazil on match day four, currently sitting outside the top five. So they would be the team home. And, and I always think back. I mean, I know Conmebol is, is a very long process. I, I always think back to the time we had Tim Vickery on and Ecuador were leading after, I think, four or five matches. And we were talking about what team is going to be out. And ultimately, it was Ecuador that was out. Um, so. You know, I kind of pose that to you a little bit here with with Uruguay being on the outside looking in and and really, really tough matches coming up here against Colombia. You know, they're going to have to go. I'm I'm assuming they're playing that one in Barranquilla and then uh, and then hosting Brazil, a team that has been, you know, perfect, like you had mentioned so far. Uh, Is this is this are there must win matches here for Uruguay to be able to hold out hope of, of qualifying? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, again, it's still early days and a lot can change. I mean, when you're looking at four match days out of uh, 18, mm-hmm. a lot can happen. But yeah, I think I think points are, you know, like we said at the beginning, you know, uh, every every point counts. Yeah. Every point counts. Be it three, be it one, whatever. Every point counts. And I think Uruguay can't afford to lose points, especially at home. I think I think they can afford to lose or drop points to Colombia. I mean, obviously, they don't want to do that. They want to go in and win like mm-hmm. any other team. But I think against Brazil, and given that they also are a, a rival, direct or direct rival uh, for the for the World Cup, they know that they need to get the win because one, they're at home, and two, I mean, it's it's against a team that you know they'll be fighting to qualify for the World Cup. But certainly, they are going into these two games as matches where they know that they cannot afford to lose. And I think if they come out of these two games with zero points or not even maybe even a point, even I think that makes it a bit difficult for them to, to catch up, especially with other teams looking to to get points and to separate themselves even further uh, in the table. Mm. Currently, uh, Brazil and Colombia, the top two scoring teams in the Colombia Bowl qualifying, and uh, Uruguay, one of the worst defensives. They've conceded five goals, but four of those were to Ecuador in the last match day. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, over the next couple of, of match days for Colombia Bowl to see if Uruguay can at least maintain a, a level of compet- competitiveness 
in the in the group and and move forward. So, with with that in mind, let's let's talk about some matches of the week coming up here this week. Uh, like we said, it's the international break, but we do have World Cup qualifiers, and we're going to start out with Argentina Paraguay on Thursday at 7 p.m. Before that, though, the United States will return to playing the first match they've played since February 1st. They're going to be over in Europe uh, playing against Wales with a with a mainly European squad. That match is at 2:45 p.m. on Thursday. Then on Friday, we have Colombia-Uruguay, one, men- one match that we've just mentioned, 3.30 p.m., and the, uh, and the Pacific Derby between Chile and Peru at 6 p.m. On Saturday, we change our focus back to Europe into the Nations League with Portugal-France at 2.45 p.m., and then on Sunday, Italy-Poland at 2.45 p.m., and Belgium-England also at 2.45 p.m. So those are going to be, it's a short list of matches of the week compared to what we've had over the past couple weeks, but with Champions League taking time off and going into this international break, we, the matches do get limited, so. Let me give you, my friend, the trivia question again. Um, And it was a simple one. Like we'd said, we are returning to Nations League. And uh, just wanted to ask you the top five goal scorers of the 2019 Nations League Group A. There are six names because there was a tie for third place. Uh, But if you can give me five names, I'll give you the six. So if you wouldn't mind uh, shooting some names at me. Well, the, the, now the interesting part is who was in, t- in Group A. So right. I'm trying to remember the teams. Um, I would assume they're the big ones. So um, I'll, I'll give you one name off the top of my ba- off the top of my head, and this is probably one that usually is always up there. Uh, is it Cristiano Ronaldo? He's tied for third. He's one of the ties. He had three goals. Okay. The second name I'm going to give you will be Kylian Mbappe. Was not on this list. Not on the list. Okay. No. All right. Uh, Would you like some hints? I, uh, let me try one more before a hint. Uh, all right. Let me stay. I mean, is, well, first of all, I would assume France is in this. I'm not there are no French players on this list. There are no French players. Okay. So that just, so yeah, give me the hint. Why not? Um, a teammate of Cristiano Ronaldo at Portugal. A teammate of Cristiano. Okay. Okay. Uh,. That's not the lick. He's a defender. I don't think he's in there. Uh, no, at Portugal, not at. Uh... Oh, at Portugal. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, oh. Oh, wait a minute. Gonzalo Gadej. No. I'll no. give you. I'll give you the name. This yes. Will be, okay. Yeah. Andre Silva. Three goals as well. Andre Silva. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's what I thought. Um, how about let's go with a former teammate of Cristiano Ronaldo. Former teammate. Yes, of his most recent former team. So Real Madrid. So Real Madrid. Okay. Uh, is he still at Real Madrid? Yes, he is. He is. Okay. Again, it's the country that, I mean, obviously the he's, country would give it away. He's notoriously huh? still at Real Madrid. How's that? Notorious. There's Sergio Ramos? Sergio Ramos also tied for third with three goals in this list. Um, mm-hmm. I have on the list what's left, yeah. a, an Englishman, a Belgian, and the top goal scorer, who was a Swiss player that plays at Benfica. Okay. Uh, the Englishman, I'm going to give you Harry Kane. No. It's not Harry If I Kane. remember okay. correctly, Harry Kane missed quite a bit of the competition with injury. Okay. Uh, much younger. Belgian. Much younger. Okay. Much, much younger uh, than Harry Kane. Jaden Sancho? Not quite that young. Okay. Close. Uh, Raheem Sterling. That's my last one. Marcus Rashford. Marcus Rashford is the fourth player tied with three goals. 
So I you're know. missing the first place and second place, and you're right, missing so a Belgian, Belgian and a Swiss. I can, okay, I think the Belgium I can get at least this one. Uh, Romelu Lukaku. Romelu Lukaku, second place, four goals. The last one, if you Swiss, yeah, the Swiss guy, no idea. Harris Seferovic from Benfica Harris. led all scores with five goals in Group A in the 2019 uh, UEFA Nations League. So nice. we'll see who yeah. who leads uh, this time around. I believe all goal scores right now is being led by um, our good friend Erling Holland. So uh, yeah, um, so we'll yeah. see what happens. Who, who, who scored also on the weekend? I mean, the guy's incredible. I mean, guys like what twenty? You know, we talk about young stars, but this guy with the in terms of goal scoring and mm-hmm. in terms of form, he's he's up there. He's a machine. He's, he's got to be up there. Yeah, he's incredible. A robot. I'm telling you, a robot. Clearly, so. Well, my friend, I don't have anything left on the docket. So with that in mind, should we hit the closing music? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So for episode 304 of Low Limit Football, special thanks again to uh, to Sabrina Belmonte from the Play-by-Play podcast for joining us. Next week, we'll look at the Conway Ball qualifiers. We'll look at the Nations League. And we will also look at the MLS playoffs as they enter decision day today. So... For episode 304 of Low Limit Football, I am Joe Ucello. I'm Robert Rojas. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night.